After this, I'll ask for questions from the audience, and you can raise your hands. I'll call one of you. Please come, and there's a seat reserved for you here. And then you'll use the microphone, tell us your name, tell us your question, and wait there till I answer it, and then you can go back to your seat. But first, a question from the, from the world community. Yes, Diane. Yes, the first questions have to do with why there is so much suffering in the world. And this email comes from Saptashi, who is 19 years old. He has been a student at the Narendra Poor Ramakrishna Mission Vidyalai in Kolkata and is currently studying at a medical college, where in the hospital he is regularly confronted with sorrow and death. And as he says, he has seen the heartbreaking cry of a poor loving mother who lost her nine-year-old son to disease. So he asks, if there is suffering because we do not know our true nature as Brahman, then why did Brahman deliberately manifest this world of Maya where suffering exists? Or does suffering exist because, as Takur said, this is the leela of the supreme or God? If so, then what kind of God is he or she who likes creatures to suffer? Is this God mad or insane or cruel, who likes to hear the cry of people and then wants to search for him? Or is it because God is aware of the fact that, oh, these little creatures do not matter because everything took birth from me and eventually everything is going to end in me. The whole, creature is, the whole creation is going to end. Let them cry. So what? And we also had a similar email from Deepan, who asks, um, if there's no... If there's no external God as such, and it's all within ourself, our own self, then whom to pray to and seek protection from adversities and danger? If there is an external God to whom the majority of the world's population pray, why is there so much turmoil, innocent killings, heinous crime happening all over the globe, and God doesn't stop them or save the innocents when humanity itself is being devastated. Is this all a myth then? All right. Real heavy stuff to start off with. <laughs> yes, but it's a very serious question. I'm sure all of us, we have had this question at some time or the other. We have this question all the time. Why is there suffering in the world if God exists? Now, I'll give you two answers. First, a detailed discussion and directly I'll respond to the question. And then a deeper answer, the second one later on. First of all, this question itself. Why is there suffering in the world if God exists? Why is there evil in the world if God exists? This question has been asked by people throughout the ages. And it continues to be asked. And theologians and philosophers in all cultures, in all religions have tried to respond to this. Notice one thing here. Our idea of God is that God is all-powerful and all-good. So if God is all-powerful and all-good, God loves us and God is good, then suffering should not be there. If one of these conditions are not satisfied, then there can be suffering actually. Imagine a God who is all-powerful but not all-good. A cosmic dictator in the sky. Extremely powerful, can do whatever uh, he, she or it wishes then you wouldn't ask why there is suffering. You would say, yeah, because the big guy up in the sky is 
is a dictator, so that's why we, we are suffering. And it was so in a certain phase of human history. I was very interested to find out that the old story of Noah's Ark, you know, there was a great flood. There's a flood myth in many ancient cultures of the world. So there was a great flood. And do you know why the flood was there? Because God found a lot of unrighteousness in the world and so sent a flood to wipe out all this unrighteousness and to restore justice and order in the world. Now that's a good God, a righteous God. But the same story exists in a more ancient culture, in Babylon. And the story is slightly different in one very interesting detail. There, in the story, God is there, all-powerful, but only all-powerful. The idea of being just or good is not there. Just God is all-powerful. Then what happens? This God is disturbed by the noise that humanity, humanity makes. God's rest was disturbed because human beings are very noisy. So he decided, I'll wipe them all out. I'll drown them all. And there is this righteous person whom he selects, just like Noah. The names are different. They're difficult names. I've forgotten the names. But he gives them an ark in which to take animals two by two and preserve them until the flood tides go down and then the, all life can be restarted. And hopefully they'll be quieter next time. There is no concept of goodness or righteousness or fairness or justice there. It's just power. There you cannot ask, why are we suffering? Because God is all-powerful. God can make us suffer. But when the idea of justice and goodness was added, as it happened in Judaism, next, the same story, you see how it takes a turn. Now you cannot say God drowned people because they were noisy. We wouldn't worship such a God. So the idea of concept of God as fair, as just, comes in there. You can see an evolution in our concept of God. God is not evolving. Our concept of God is evolving. We are understanding more and more. And, the, and then the question can arise, why is God, there so much evil and suffering in the world? If God is all-powerful, but also just. And the problem becomes even more complicated when you say God is all-loving. Right? It may be that we deserve suffering, so it's just to punish us. But a loving God would not want us to suffer. Imagine parents. You love your children so much, you would never want your children to suffer. The only reason children suffer is because human parents are not all-powerful. They cannot prevent that suffering. He mentions a, human, a mother crying because she lost her child to disease. If she could have, she would have definitely saved the child. She can't. So when you combine omnipotence with benevolence, then this question arises. Really God loves us, okay? And really God can do everything, then why do we suffer? And an answer is necessary. Otherwise it shakes faith. In fact, one of the arguments against the existence of God is the existence of evil. The, what, this is called the problem of evil in theology. In different religions of the world, it's the, called the problem of evil. And we want an answer. Well, I'll tell you about not one answer, but 23. Don't worry, I will not list out all the 23 answers. Uh, there's this book, uh, The Problem of Evil in Indian Thought, by Professor Arthur Herman. Arthur Herman. You can find it online also. What this gentleman has done is not only limited himself to Indian thought, but he has taken a survey of this question and the answers to it 
in different religions of the world, not only in religion, in philosophy, in literature, and he has come up with a list of 23 answers. 23 answers to this question. Why do we suffer in this world? And he has listed those answers. I'll tell you some of them. You're looking amazed. 23 answers. I thought the question was not answerable. 23 answers. Yes, I'll tell you some of them. Prepare to be underwhelmed. <laughs> you will notice one thing about the answers. Some of them are simple, maybe a little silly. Some of them are very clever, but all of them have one thing in common. They are not satisfying. For example, there is um, one answer is, God is testing us. These are actually serious theories put forward by some thinkers at some time in human history. God is testing us. But then the same question will arise. What kind of a test is it to make a baby suffer? What can, what can the baby do? Look at the enormous suffering in the animal kingdom. What can they do except suffer? What test can they pass? So there are objections to these theories. There's a similar theory which says another answer. It's a, called a soul-making theory. God is building up our character by suffering. It might work for an adult person who is responsible, who is conscious, and who can change. But again, the same objection will arise. How do you account for the suffering? Enormous, unchanging suffering in the animal kingdom for millions of years. And you, nothing that you can do will stop it. When a lion jumps upon a deer and eats it, when a, when a lizard, a gecko, catches an insect, no matter what you may say, if you look at the insect struggling, you feel suffering there. How can you stop that? And how is that building up anybody's character? The Holocaust. Tremendous. You cannot explain that kind of suffering. Where millions of people are killed. Just massacred. So how is that building up character in any way? So there are doubts about this kind of theory also. And there are many, many other theories. All of them have some problem or the other. And this professor discusses each of them and shows the problems with these theories. The theory that God has given us free will. That's one big theory. God has given us free will and God will not interfere with our choices. And it's our choices that lead to suffering. But even there, we have these dispositions which lead us to to slip and make mistakes and commit error and evil. And what kind of a responsible parent is it who gives a loaded gun to a toddler? Free will. I will not interfere. Let the toddler do what it wants with the gun. The end will not be good. So why give us free will and a set of dispositions which almost all the time we tend to misuse that free will? And again, it does not explain suffering in the animal kingdom or even for helpless infants and children. So all these theories, one more theory which he considers very good, the professor. He says the law of, of karma, causation, cause and effect. Cause and effect. If we consider ourselves as conscious beings traveling from life to life and ex enjoying and suffering the results of our past karma, generating new karma and enjoying the suffering results thereof. So we are building our own lives. Vivekananda says... There was never a blow that was undeserved. Unkind thing to say. But let's take responsible for our own, responsibility for our own lives. You can even see how that kind, the global kind of thing, you know, the cause and effect. Causes have effects. Actions have consequences. That can actually even explain the sufferings in where you're helpless. Say, somebody said, what karma can a butterfly do? 
Nothing. It can only ex experience the results of past karma. You can only do conscious karma when you come to a human birth. But it, this cause and effect can actually explain suffering and experience in animal life, in any kind of conscious life. So past karma is giving results. Sometimes it may be in human birth, sometimes I may be an infant, sometimes I may be an insect in the mouth of a gecko, which is all past karma. A little more clever answer this time. This, this answer is, in fact, the professor says this is the best possible solution. He's got a whole chapter on the defects of the law of karma. Whole chapter. And he says, in spite of these defects, there's nothing else that comes close to the law of karma. Even then, it's not a perfect theory. Sri Ramakrishna was asked this. One of the questioners mentions the, the theory of Leela. Sri Ramakrishna says it is the Leela of God. Somebody asked Sri Ramakrishna, why is there so much suffering in the world if God exists? The same question. In the gospel, you'll find this question. And Sri Ramakrishna gives the answer which this young boy has given. That it is the Leela of God. It is the play of God. What can we do? And the devotee who asked this question did not take it well. His reply was, it may be the Leela of God, but it is death to us. In Bengali, he said, Tarto Leela, Ramra Mori. It may be the divine play of God. It's play for God. It's death for us. Then Sri Ramakrishna gives the real reply. Now I'm coming to the real reply which I would like to give. When he says it's death to us, Sri Ramakrishna said just one little thing after which there was no, no further question possible. Sri Ramakrishna said, death to us you say, but who are you? Do you know who you are? Meaning thereby if you did investigate who you are, that's what Vedanta does, what would you find? You are one with God. The same God who manifests this universe is you yourself. What we sang, Satyam, Jnana, Manantam, Brahma, you are that. From that point of view, no evil touches you or anybody else. Think about it. Advaita says, Brahma, Satyam, Jagat, Mithya, Jiva, Brahma, Vanapara. Brahman, that Satyam, Jnana, Manantam, Brahma, infinite existence consciousness, is the only reality. The world of appearance and suffering is an appearance, it's false. Then what about me? Am I real or false? You are one with Brahman. You are real. You are real as Brahman. I'll ask you a question. The greatest of tragedies, the worst of things, worst of suffering, it's permissible in only one case. It's even enjoyable in one place, one case. When? Think about it. When is the only time you would not be upset with suffering? When you would even say it's good, it's great. In a film... In art, in a story, in fiction, if it actually did not happen, in a dream, when you wake up from that and you say, oh, thank God, it was a nightmare. If it actually did not happen, then you would not be outraged, isn't it? You might even enjoy it. You might even enjoy it. But only from a point of, from a place of security, from a place of safety, where you are not being touched by that suffering. So the real answer is here. No clever theory will ever satisfy your question. You know, the question which you have, why is there suffering? I may give you the cleverest of theories. The professor, good professor, gives a law of karma, which is great. Even beyond the law of karma is the explanation given by Vedanta, Maya. That's an even better explanation, I think. Even that will not satisfy you. You know what will satisfy you? This answer to this question will be, you will get a satisfa satisfaction only when you transcend suffering. And the only way you will transcend suffering is by self-realization.
by realizing that you are one with God. Moksha, Nirvana, whatever you call it. The Upanishad says, Tarati Shokam Atmavit. The knower of the self, of Atman, transcends sorrow. That's the only way you're going to transcend sorrow. These questions are good. Answers are worth exploring. You can go and look at, look at those 23 answers and select the one which appeals to you the most. Still, you will be underwhelmed. You will not be satisfied by that. The only thing that will satisfy you, which has satisfied anybody else in the world, is realization. Finding God, self-realization, enlightenment, whatever you call it. I think this is a good point to start asking questions. Anybody, would you raise, care to raise your hands? Yes, somebody from the audience? Please come, come here, please come here. Yeah, there's a seat here. Please tell us your name and ask your question. Pranam um, Maharaj, thank you for the very insightful um, and deep answer. My name is Shiba Mouli, uh, Shibu. Um, the question I had is, um, so um, you mentioned uh, <coughs> self-realization as the as the only way to transcend sorrow and misery. Now, if we look at the life of great, you know, devotees, bhaktas, I mean, we also see this other, this other way of um, looking at sorrow as their chosen deity itself. Like, like you have come in the form of, in the garb of, of sorrow. Is that any different from realization or is it a different kind of realization? All right. It's a good question. Uh, sit, sit, sit there. Yes, we'll talk about it. So the question, I'll sum up. The Upanishads say that self-realization is the path to transcend sorrow. But there's also another path which you find devotees surrender to God. Whatever you give, my Lord, sorrow or joy, comes from you. And that's all I want. I only want you. I accept it because it comes from you. Thou has put me in suffering. I accept it. That path of surrender which a bhakta, a devotee takes. What about that? Is that a valid path? Yes, it is. In fact, these are two different attitudes. Both will give you the same result. Notice one thing here though. When I say transcends, transcends sorrow, goes beyond sorrow, it's not that the persons do not suffer. It's not that the person used to get a tummy ache earlier now has become enlightened and doesn't get a tummy ache. The same thing might happen. It, might, it will continue. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna, he had a cancer in the throat and the body actually passed away. He, uh, the uh, physical death was there because of the throat cancer and the pain was also there. What is meant by transcending? Is enlightenment a painkiller? I'm suffering a lot. I can take, what is it, Tylenol? Or I can be enlightened, one of the two. 
Are they substitutes? No, 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 they are not. Transcending means you are there, right there, and yet you are not touched by it. You, you, you experience it, and yet you see a dimension of yourself which is far beyond pain. A classic example, when Hari Maharaj comes to Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna is suffering from cancer, throat cancer. I, one, a doctor told me one of the worst forms of cancer. Terrible suffering. He's there and Hari Maharaj asks him, Hari, he was a young boy at that time, later Swami Turiyananda, who was here in this center, in fact. Uh, he was one of the early Swamis who stayed in this center, uh, in the Vedanta Society. <laughs> Sir, how are you today? And Sri Ramakrishna says, lot of pain, I can't eat, I can't eat. Pain in the throat. And Hari says something startling. He says, but sir, I see that you are in great bliss. Now that's a cruel thing to say to a cancer patient who is suffering. But what was Sri Ramakrishna's reaction? Indignation? Outrage? No. He burst out laughing and said, oh, the rascal has caught me out. The rascal has caught me out. There is another dimension. It does not mean that the pain is not there. It does not mean that the tumor is not there. It's there, and yet you transcend it. How you do that? You see a reality beyond that. It is a bit like you go to a very well-made Oscar-winning tragedy, a movie, which you see. And you may actually cry with the hero and the, uh, and the sufferings of the, of the characters there. People cry. If it's not a good movie if it doesn't make you cry. If it's a tragedy, it doesn't make you cry, then it's not a good tragedy. And yet, at the same time, you transcend it. You know it's a story, a well-told story. So you may at one level be crying, at the other level, aesthetically enjoying it also. Art brings, good art brings tears to your eyes also. In the same way, somewhat analogous way, I'm not saying exactly the same thing, it's different. Um, you can transcend suffering when you are there. Now, this can be done in two ways. You can realize, I am that satyam jnanam anantam brahma infinite existence, consciousness, bliss, like the infinite blue sky in which clouds, some of them light and white clouds, fluffy, some of them dark and rain-bearing clouds, the thunder and lightning and hail, they pass through, and the infinite blue sky is not affected. Sorrow and suffering and pleasure and joy and birth and death, they arise in the infinite ocean of consciousness which you are. They arise there. They are revealed by that consciousness which you are. They are experienced by that consciousness. I will not even say your consciousness, you the consciousness. In you they shine and into you they melt away again. You are completely untouched at one level, at, at the deepest possible level. That's one way. The other way is what he asked. If I consider myself to be um, an individual being, I find it difficult to shift to that, that plane where I am infinite consciousness in which the body and mind are appearing. I still consider myself to be this being, separate from every, everything else. Is there no hope for me? Of course there is. Then that infinite existence, consciousness, bliss, is the God of religion to whom you can, you can pray, you, can, you love and you surrender. I'll repeat again. Vivekananda says, the God is the highest reading of the absolute by the human mind. That infinite existence, consciousness, bliss, which is your own self. The best conception that you can get of it, as in limited being right now, is God, the God of religion. And one can pray to such a God, one can surrender to such a God, one can love such a God. It's not a fiction. It's not a fiction. This actually answers the question of the second young man who wrote a letter, Dipan. 
He said, if I am Brahman, then whom, whom do I pray to? If everything is within me, then whom am I praying to? That's the question. Notice something here. If everything is within me, if I am that infinite existence, consciousness, bliss, if you really feel that, you would not feel the need to pray also. If you feel the need to pray, you are not feeling that you are this infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. Right? So if you feel the need to pray, if you feel cut off from God, then pray to God. Love God. Not a fiction. God exists. So, you can enjoy God in both ways. I am Brahman, or the Divine Mother, my loving father, my loving mother. So, Vivekananda used to say, that always he says, I am Brahman. But only when he has a tummy ache, he says mother. He says, I say mother when I have a tummy ache. <laughs> Humorously. But there's a point there. Right? Thank you. Thank you. You have a question? Okay, we'll take the question. Then we'll come back for a, for a question from the internet. Your question. Can you tell us your name and the question? So my name is Jyoti Agarwala. And first I want to say it's very good fortune that we New Yorkers have you in residence here. I'm delighted that you're here. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> to answer these questions. You mentioned earlier as you started the morning that it's in our grasp to experience um, this trinity of Sachitananda. Yes. And um, in last week's lecture, you talked about Maya and the Shaktis of Maya mm -hmm. and uh, the Varana and Vikshepa. Avarana and Vikshepa. Ava, Avarana, Avarana means covering and Vikshepa. And Vikshepa. The, the concealing and the projections. And so, what, in your opinion, is the best path for us to uh, overcome these shaktis which keep us from that experience of Turiya? Yes. So how do I overcome the veiling power of, of Maya, which prevents me from realizing what I already am? So it's not a trinity. Satchidananda is existence, consciousness, bliss. It's a unity. It's a non-duality. These are three aspects of that, not, not, not qualities, not three different entities. The Trinity would imply three in one, you know. So, it's one reality, and that's what you are. Now, how do I overcome the veiling power of Maya? That is the question. Big task. But also a very simple task. See, first of all, recognize that you are that already. Even if, you're if you think that I'm enlightened, I don't know that, fine. But Advaita Vedanta says, you do not know that, but you are that. Once Swami has to sit at his feet in the Himalayas, he would, once in a while he would say in Hindi, Tum jano ya na jano, whether you know it or not. Tum mano ya na mano, whether you accept it or not. Tum hi Ram. You are Rama, God. You are God. So, that's one thing. What I am already and yet I do not know it, the only thing it could be the veil is, what is this a veil of? Is it made of cloth? Is it an iron door which has been slammed shut? Uh, is it a concrete box? What is it? It's just ignorance. It's just a veil of confusion. It's a mist. One of the earliest meanings of Maya is a mist. Kuhak, they say in Bengali. Something that confuses us. 
So the only answer to your question is, how do you overcome ignorance? We all know, true? <coughs> Knowledge. You need to know who you are, right? And the path to this in Vedanta is Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana. Shravana, hearing these truths, studying it systematically, what we do here. Again and again, listen to it. It's about you. It's not some boring, dry philosophy from uh, halfway across the world from a culture 5,000 years ago. No, no, no. It's about you right now. We're talking about you, your deepest reality. So listen to these truths again and again. Then questions will come. Answer these questions. And then meditate upon it. Once you have heard these truths, understood it, removed doubts, what you are convinced about, then you meditate deeply upon that and clarity will come. Clarity will come about what? What you already are. I was saying that other day. In Vedanta, what do you get? You get what you already have got. Praptasya prapti, they say in Hindi, on Sanskrit. What you have already got, you get that. What do you mean I'll get what I've already got? What you have got... There's only one way you can miss what you have got. Somehow you don't know it, that you have got it. So Vedanta only tells you that you've got it. Somebody said the business of a management consultant is to look at your watch and tell you the time. (laughs) Vedanta is very much like that. It's your watch. And what will Vedanta remove? Nivrittasya nivritti, they say. What was never there is removed by Vedanta. That I am a miserable little creature who is born and who who dies, maybe goes through many lives, all of that, that's what I think I am, that will be removed. It will be shown to be false. It's a concept, it's a misconception. Now, is this enough? Often it is not. Because we have complicated things so much that to make it uncomplicated, uh, to untangle the knots we have ourselves made, some other supporting uh, practices are recommended. Meditation is important, Raja Yoga. Devotion to God, Bhakti Yoga is important. And Karma Yoga, the deepest bondage is our attachment to this little being, which we call I, this little being of body and mind. This this is another word, is called selfishness. And Karma Yoga cuts at the root of this selfishness. Our actions are now directed towards the cosmic, not towards this individual. Bhakti Yoga, Channelizes your love, the power of love and attachment and desire, which goes towards the world. The nature of desire is, I want the world. The nature of bhakti is, I want the same I want. That I want is same. God. My Krishna, my Divine Mother, my Christ, whatever you call it. An intense love of God. Bhakti Yoga. And Raja Yoga. Meditation. Can you calm the chattering mind down to a deep stillness? One of the most beautiful things I heard again in Hindi from a Swami again in the Himalayas. He said in his homely Hindi, Shant man mein koi samsar nahi dekha hai bhala. In a deeply peaceful mind, there is no samsara. Have you noticed a very peculiar thing? Problems are no problems when your mind is peaceful. Problems are problems in an agitated mind. When your mind is completely at peace. You see, you say, I am not at peace because of my problems. No, no, no. You have problems because you are not at peace. Peaceful mind, meditation. With this unselfish mind, with this devoted mind, with this peaceful mind, if you apply yourself to Vedanta, 
the north flash of intuition, Brahma Jnana, what they call Brahma Karavritti, is bound to come. I mean, you will discover the, the treasure within. Mr. Dhar was just singing in Bengali. Janhovi Tire Trishna Kathur. On the bank, oh ye who are blind, sitting on the bank of the Ganges and dying of thirst. We're just not turning around and seeing what is within us. We look into the world, into a desert to satisfy our thirst. And a desert cannot satisfy your thirst. You may spend life after life chasing the things of the world. You will get them, but it will not satisfy your thirst. Vivekananda said, never desire anything. Why? Why? Because you will get them. You will get it. That's why I don't desire it. You see, the law of karma says, the moment you ask for something, really intensely work towards it, you will get it. You see, is that so bad? You'll be trapped again. As long as you want to experience this world and you think really the solution to your personal problem lies in this world, go ahead, try it. Vedanta is very patient. We'll be there. <laughs> we'll wait for you. You come back, this lifetime, many lifetimes hence. I'll wait. Very good. There was a second part yes. question. Um, you also talked about raga and dvesha. Yes. We have cravings and we have Aversion. aversions. So if we have this cravings and aversions, um, and also there is this idea that all these paths you said to uh, raj, uh, bhakti yoga and raj yoga, they're not very practical in our Manhattan existence. So is there a possibility that you could use psychotherapy as a way to know yourself huh. in a way, in this practical way that you have this hour with a therapist, you're saying, why am I angry when I see uh, something happen? Or why am I sad? Or why am I reacting this way? And in that process, come to a place where you stop craving and you stop, you know, being, uh, hating things or not liking them. Is there any role in a modern way? Yes. Um, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, if you say, I'm sure it does some good, definitely. But uh, if you say modern way, even psychoanalysis is becoming dated. I saw a Time magazine story saying that why Freud has lost his validity, his charm, and is being replaced by a variety of new techniques. Now the, all the rage is CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, talk therapies, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm sure they do uh, give you benefit. And my little bit of exploration in positive psychology has shown me that it is beneficial. But the thing is, what I've seen overall, if they are successful, at the most, what they can do for you is they fine-tune a little bit so that you function better in this world. They do not go to the deepest existential problem. As long as you think, I am this limited creature, flesh and blood, cut off from everything else in the world, subject to every influence in the world, heat and cold and, uh, and insult and praise, financial success and failure, and so many things in the world and so many things from deep within, I'm tossed in this. Unless you go to the root of that, which is who am I? Right? Until that time, 
you solve a mess today, tomorrow the mess will be there. New mess will be there. Definitely. There is, there is no, uh, no permanent solution here. Now, one way out is the people will say, well, there is no permanent solution. So you have to make the best that you can. No. All religions in different language, this is the promise of religion, that there is a permanent, a deep solution, a profound solution is there. Call it God, Brahman, self-realization, salvation, moksha, nirvana. All the great teachers of humanity throughout the ages have promised this. And the proof of this is, proof of the pud pudding is in the eating, the proof of this is, Hundreds, if not thousands of people through the ages in different cultures have pursued this path and not one of them till today who has pursued it in some sincerity also may not have attained God. Not one of them has come and said that, oh, it's all nonsense. No, not one. Now, if you say one hour with a the therapist, if we find that practical, why not one hour of studying Vedanta and meditating and praying? Same one hour. And it will save you $150 also. <laughs> yes. I think Swami Ashokanandaji was not in favor. That was the heyday of psychoanalysis. 1950s and 60s. Everybody, if you are, if you are somebody in society, you had, you had to have your therapist. Like in India, you have your guru. So here, you had to have your therapist. Those days are past now. But Swami Ashokananda reacting to that, he said, he said, don't go to them. They will uh, disintegrate you and reintegrate you and, uh, and until you are a mass of patchwork. <laughs> um, one way is to look at the insights of psychology, especially positive psychology. A lot of advances have been made in the last 20-25 years actually, which are pretty good, I think. And integrate them into your spiritual practice. That you can do. I think that's where I was headed. Yes, <laughs> yes. East-West. One thing I'll, I'll just say, East-West is very good. Uh, Swami Vivekananda said, those rishis who gave us the Upanishads and Gita and everything, they are all wonderful, but they are all dead and gone. You too must be rishis for yourself. You must think for yourself. You must carve out your own path. All the treasures are there before you. Use them. See how it is useful. One thing I'll leave you with. When you say ragadvesha, aversion and desire, when you say problems in the mind, no, you say that it's there in your consciousness. Isn't it? Vedanta says, who experiences this raga and dvesha, this aversion and desire? Take a look at that. You see, we become so busy in trying to manage our problems, our mental problems. We're trying to manage the objects. But who is the one trying to manage? We're trying to reduce the suffering. But who is the one who says that I am suffering? Vedanta says, if you could take, turn around and you know, look into that, your problems will be solved. You would transcend the mess. The mess would still remain like that maybe. But often the mess takes care of itself. We torture the mind unnecessarily sometimes. I want to enjoy this. Mind, you must enjoy. If the mind gets bored, you, you feel bad. Oh, I'm not able to enjoy this movie or this food or something. Right, the mind, you must meditate now. You sit and meditate, and mind feels poor, mind feels sleepy, and you say, what a loser I am, I can't even meditate. <laughs> You're torturing the mind. If you leave it alone, often you will find the mind settles down into something very nice. Take a step back. You know, the reason we are torturing the mind is we think we are the mind. 
and we have to be in a certain way and not in that way. The mind is full of aversions and desires and all that. Let it be. What, what it, what's it to you? Say, so what do you mean, Swami? What's it to me? No, really, I mean it. What's it to you? <coughs> the moment you let it alone, you'll find the mind settles down. Be centered in the self, not in the mind or the body. You said practical life in Manhattan. I'll leave you with this question. Are you in Manhattan or is Manhattan in you? Manhattan is in your consciousness. Where is Manhattan when you go to deep sleep? As a prominent politician once said, he said that, I was born in the slum, but I took care to see that the slum was not born in me. You can be in Manhattan. Don't let Manhattan in there. The boat can be in water. Don't let the boat, uh, you know, the water into the boat. The way to see that is to do exactly that, to see that Manhattan is actually an appearance in you. And it can go on in its own way. You be at peace. Thank you, Jyoti. One question from the internet. Yes. Yes, next. We have one question from the internet and then you can, you can ask. This is from Saswati, and she, and she wants to know the real meaning of the first stanza of Dakshina Murti Staba by Acharya Shankara. And mm. then there was another one that you yes. wanted to follow up on. And Bashali is asking, are we the jiva in Brahman's dream? Okay. An explanation of the first um, stanza of the Dakshina Murti Stotram. Now, that's good. I, I'm sure the reason the person is asking the question is a number of times I've quoted it. So it's one of my favorites. Uh, that's why I think the question has come. In some lecture in the internet, it must be there. Um, it was, it's a hymn written by Shankaracharya to Dakshina Murti. Dakshina Murti is the, the south-facing Shiva the Shiva who grants knowledge. God in his aspect of granting spiritual knowledge. Dakshinamurti. Now, there, the first stanza is so beautiful. It goes like this. Vishwam darpana drishyamana nagari tulyam nijantargatam parshyannatmani mayaya bahirivodbhutam yathanidraya I salute Shiva, Dakshinamurti Shiva. Who is my Guru? Who is my own self? The self, Atma, Guru, and God are one. Ishvara Guru Ratmeti Murti Bheda Vibhagine. They appear in different forms as God, as my Guru, and as my own self. It's one undivided reality. I salute that. In whom the entire universe appears like a city in a mirror. Look at this image. Vishwam Darpana Drishyamana Nagaritulyam. 
Sometimes when you're driving outside Manhattan, when you cross the bridge, when you look at your driving mirror, you can see Manhattan shining at night. The lights of Manhattan shining in your mirror, in your driving mirror. It's like the whole city is in your mirror. You can see the buildings and the skyline and the bridge, everything you can see in the mirror. Exactly like that, Shankara says, the entire universe, like a city in a mirror, is in you, the consciousness. The mirror is you, consciousness. And in you, the entire universe appears. Now, in the case of a mirror, the city is outside. And you're driving and the city is reflected in your mirror. But Shankaracharya says, Nijantar Gatam. Here, there is no universe, universe outside consciousness. By the power of Maya, the universe is projected in consciousness itself. How is this possible? We do it every day, at night, when you dream. Yatha Nidraya, he says. Just like you dream. And when you dream, you forget that you are lying in your bed safe and sound. But you see your world, maybe Manhattan. And you see yourself walking in, in your dream, in the world created in your dream, in your mind. You are also there in that world. You have a body and you are walking. You are talking with people. It's as if the world is outside you. In your dream, when you see a world, when you see people, it's as if the people are outside you. And yet they are in reality, all of them are in you, the dreaming mind. Isn't it? So an entire universe, a world is created and projected as if outside in our dreams every day in the night. When we wake up, we think, oh, it was all in my head, it was a dream. Exactly like that, in consciousness, an entire universe is projected, like a city in the mirror. Imagine there is no, mirror out, no city outside, just the mirror and city there. They didn't have television in Shankaracharya's day. Otherwise, he could have given the example of a television where there's nothing outside needed for a reflection. It's produced from inside. So, in consciousness, this universe appears. The reason it, it appealed to me was, as a kid, I think I was maybe 9 or 10 years old, once we were driving, I remember my dad was driving and we were, we were in the, in the, outside the city, so it was dark. But when we were approaching the city, I saw the city in the mirror. I don't know why it struck me so deeply. I don't know why. I never forgot that. Years later, when I came across that example in Shankaracharya's Dakshinamurti Stotram, the universe is like a city seen in a mirror, shining in the mirror of your own consciousness. It's inside you. Then I was so thrilled to read this, so I often would quote it. Notice one thing about the city in the mirror. In the mirror, the city which you are seeing in the mirror, it's not really there. What's there? It's a mirror. Every bit of the city that you see there, the buildings, the roads, the people, the sky, the birds, they're all what? They're the mirror, they're glass. There's no real bird or man or, or, a, uh, or a building or road in the mirror. It's just an image in the mirror. In the same way, they say, in, in this consciousness in which the universe appears, there is no real world outside which your consciousness is experiencing. That's how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as, here is the world, Manhattan, and I'm a person, little person in this world with a little bit of consciousness. I'm a body with consciousness. And with this consciousness, I'm experiencing this Manhattan. Enjoying, suffering, seeking, desiring, getting hurt, living, older, disease, death. All this is because I think I'm this body. Whereas all the time, Vedanta tells you, in your consciousness, just like a dream, 
Manhattan appears, your body appears, your mind appears with its thoughts and desires and everything. You are the consciousness in which this appears. And then through this you can act. Think of yourself not as a body with consciousness. Think of yourself as a consciousness in which a body appears. Think of yourself as a consciousness in which the world appears. You can do it right now. In fact, it's not imagination. Vedanta seeks to re-educate us. It gives us new eyes to see, not new things to see. I think it was in Eliot's poem. I've forgotten the thing there. That we shall set forth voyaging on seas unknown, seeking new adventures. I've forgotten the exact, maybe Ulysses or something. Uh, who wrote that? Tennyson? There must be Tennyson. Yes. And, and to, to seek and to find, yes. And then, then he writes. And maybe I'm mixing up the poets. And we shall, then, and not to yield, yes, that's there. But then we shall come back again. To, 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 to your home and hearth and everything. And to see old things anew with new eyes. Vedanta takes you on this journey and brings you back. Is that Tennyson? Yeah, the comeback part, I think, it, I don't know where it is. So when you come back again, the same world, now you are seeing it with new eyes, with the eyes of Vedanta. Yes. So it also explains the second one. Are we, are we creatures in Brahman's dream? A nice way of putting it. And in a, in a, you know, there's an old thing that are we somebody in somebody else's dream? It's a nice philosophical conundrum. There's a modern version of that. That some philosophers say that there's a super advanced alien civilization which is running extremely advanced computer simulations and we, our world and universe is a simulation in the computer simulation of some advanced alien civilization. And somebody no less than Elon Musk backs this theory. He says it's quite possible. It's quite possible. It's basically the same, are we in somebody else's dream theory? And one of the ideas is Vishnu is dreaming this dream of the universe. Lord Vishnu. And we, this universe appears in Vishnu's dream. But Vedanta will point out one thing here. Whether it's somebody else's dream or not, the one unchangeable, unchallengeable fact is you are experiencing it, isn't it? Right now? You are experiencing your waking. You are experiencing your dreams. You are experiencing the absence of waking and dream in deep sleep. And again you experience waking and dreaming. That you experience cannot be denied. Vedanta is saying that whether what you experience is a dream or not, look at who is experiencing. I'm sorry for sounding so monomaniacal. I keep driving you back to that point. Who is experiencing? Are we creatures in Brahman's dream? Vedanta's first answer would be, in a way, yes. The real answer would be, you are Brahman. You are Brahman. One alone exists. It appears as nature and soul. We are dreaming this dream of Maya. Yes. Um, there was a question. Anybody would like to ask? Yes. Yes. I'll repeat the question afterwards, don't worry. Yes. Vidyate Hridayagranti. Yes. Sarva Shankshaya. Yes. 
Is it spiritual retreat? Yes. <laughs> so Vishnu, I think, may have had the last word because we are almost out of time. Bhidyate hridaya granti chidyante sarvasamshaya. One of the most beautiful descriptions of the result of illumination. You get Brahma Jnana, you realize Brahman, whatever it is, what do you get out of it in the, at the end of it? If you say you get what you've already had and what was not there was removed and not particularly inspiring. But the Mundaka Upanishad is so inspiring. Bhidyate hridaya granti. The knots of the heart are rent asunder. All doubts. Chidyante sarvasanshaya. All doubts go forever. No, all the questions will wither away. All the questions will be burned to a crisp in the blazing fire of knowledge. You have no doubt after this anymore. It's so clear. You see, when I say, I understand it, Swami. But the moment I step outside the Vedanta Swari, it becomes confused again. <laughs> then it's a sign that it is not steady yet. It's not clear. It's not, it's not illumination. You have a grasp on it. You begin to get what, what's being talked about. But when this illumination comes, with the light of a thousand suns, it's, not, it's a figurative thing. Don't think you'll, you'll light up and <laughs> start glowing. But yes, there'll be a glow in your face. But it's the light of consciousness. You, you realize it's there all the time. You realize it's there right now. You just see it for the first time. Chidyante sarvashamshaya. After this, no doubt can remain. For a person looking up at the blazing sun, even if you argue a thousand times with him that there is no sun, it's impossible for him to listen to your arguments. Somebody asked a great jnani, how do you, you always experience Brahman, how do you experience Brahman? As a, um, as a concept, as an awareness, or as a memory of some spiritual experience? As some background awareness or something shadowy in which the world is there. And he says, no, nothing background, nothing abstract or nothing shadowy. He says, I experience it as solidly as a rock filling the entire universe. Nirantara, without any gap, without, it's always there. Unavoidably, you cannot escape it. Chidyante sarvasamshaya. Kshiyante chasya karmani. All the karmas of such a one which will give rise to this life and next life, especially the karmas which will give rise to the lives to come, those karmas are burnt up because you see yourself as one with Brahman. The individual existence will continue for a while. The example is a chariot or a fan is, is going on. You switch up the fan, it will still rotate for a couple of times. The body will go on for a while and it will be a great blessing for the rest of humanity. Your very existence will be a blessing for humanity. Everybody gets that peace and joy from you. Even if you do not speak, they get, get it from you. And after the body drops off, the physical body dissolves into physical nature, the subtle body melts away into subtle nature, consciousness remains as it is. You, you are Brahman, you are Brahman, you remain as Brahman. The, the pot is broken. The little space in the pot merges with the vast space outside. Merges only figuratively. It was always one. Just that appearance of distinction goes away. Vivekananda says, he then no more how body lives or, or dies. Its task is done. Let karma float it down. You are free. That person, the person doesn't become free. You become free of the person. You will see the person just like you see all other persons. As Vishnu put it so brilliantly, 
That is the meaning of spiritual retreat. I couldn't have put it better. I think we should all give a hand to Vishnu. <laughs> yeah. That is the purpose, the meaning of spiritual retreat. That insight. So let me know when the food is, somebody should let me know when the food is ready. Yes, then, then we will we'll bring it to a conclusion. Let, let me know. Uh, let me know. Yes. Please sit. Please sit for a while. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu